Sex and Murder, a cult killer paranormal podcast. Welcome to part two of the Mutiny of HMS Bounty. When we last left off, there were some, let's say, hostilities between Captain Bly and the crew of the Bounty, particularly regarding rations. Now, I promised at the end of the last episode that we would get to a mutiny, and indeed we will. So let's kick off this episode with the HMS Bounty arriving at the beginnings of the Endeavour Strait. Now, despite only two previous European navigators sailing through the area called the Endeavour Strait, now known as the Torres Strait, it hadn't actually been mapped. In addition to the mission to get the breadfruit to Jamaica, Bly was under orders to document the strait. Much like his hero Cook, Bly thought he could maybe put his stamp on the atlas. So Bly felt an added pressure, making him a mix of anxious and angry as they neared the strait. The crew became fearful of any outburst from him. Bly had threatened to kill half the crew when they entered the Endeavour Strait and promised that he would make his officers jump overboard and eat grass like cows. Of course, you wouldn't know any of Bly's outrage according to his journal, where he had recorded that the voyage had advanced in a course of uninterrupted prosperity and that he had attended with many circumstances equally pleasing and satisfactory. The evening of the coconut incident that we described in the last episode, Christian was to dine with Bly, but he had excused himself saying he wasn't feeling well. This evening was the evening Christian would set into motion the mutiny. The night of April 27th was clear and the crew could see in the distance the island of Tufois. Bly attended the deck between 10 and 11 and gave his last orders for the night. Friar had refused to dine with Bly back in Tahiti. Bly began writing in his journal that he would have liked to do away with Friar altogether. They didn't talk except when on duty together. Friar informed Bly that the weather looked to be good and that it would be fortunate for them when they reached the coast of New Holland, that is, Australia. Bly nodded in agreement and went back to his cabin. Christian went about gathering supplies. He lashed together a raft out of planks and prepared for it to launch over the side of the ship. The island in the distance was the target. Now you might wonder, how could he do any of this without raising any sort of alarm? Well, it was known to the crew now for a while that Christian was looking for an out. George Stewart and Christian would be seen entering cabins that they had really no business being in, and Morrison had heard one telling the other that it won't do tonight. Peckover took over the watch from Fryer. Christian had a small window to launch, before the changing again at four in the morning. Alas, though, he couldn't find the opportunity to do so. Around 3.30, after some drinking, he fell asleep for half an hour. Stuart woke him up to take off the watch at four. It seems Christian had missed his chance to head for Tefoir. Overnight, the distance had increased as they sailed away from the island. 
Now, in the early hours of the 28th of April, two officers of Christian's watch, Thomas Hayward and Hallett, had fallen asleep on watch. Christian spoke to Quintal and Martin, recruiting them to his cause. Quintal required some persuasion, but Martin was all on board the second Christian mentioned mutiny. And the two went about gathering other men, Churchill, Thompson, John Williams, McCoy, Adams. The morning would progress as normal. Christian ordered the seamen on deck to prepare for cleaning. Charles Norman saw a huge shark cruising along the side of the ship and shouted alarm, but before anyone could get to it, it was gone, and the now awake Thomas Hayward and Hallett would attempt to catch it. Christian roused Joseph Coleman, awake, and asked for the keys to the armory, saying he wanted to shoot the shark. Churchill got up on the deck earlier than he was required, which caused Hayward to become suspicious. He started to walk towards Bly's cabin, to which Christian and several other men emerged with muskets and bayonets, jamming the ramrods down the barrels. They cut off Hayward, and Christian unsheathed his cutlass and yelled, Damn your blood, Mamu, the Tahitian word for silence. Hayward froze in place. Some men went below to guard the officers, and others stood sentry over the arms chest. At five in the morning, Christian and three other men broke into Bly's cabin. Christian announced that Bly was now his prisoner, to which Bly called out, calling them all murderers. They dragged him back out on deck and tied his hands. Quintal and John Summer secured Friar in Bly's now vacant cabin. Damn his eyes, put him in the boat and let the bugger see if he can live upon three-fourths of a pound of yams a day, Sumner said. Friar asked why go into the boat, and Quintal replied, Mr. Christian is captain of the ship and recollect that Mr. Bly has brought all this upon himself. At first it was just Bly, Hayward, Hallett, and Samuel in the boat. Christian planned on setting them down at Toffois. These small boats were rotted out by worms, though. Purcell appealed for the launch of the 23-foot cutter, since it had the capacity for 10 people. Christian ordered for Bly's chest of personal items to be placed in the boat, along with some provisions as per a marooning typical of the time. Hallett and Hayward pleaded to be allowed to board the ship, and William Cole insisted that they needed a compass. Quintal told them that they were lucky to get what they did. When Bly tried to reason with the mutineers, Christian shut him down, saying, Mamou, sir, not a word or death your portion. It wouldn't be too long before Bly was groveling, saying he would forfeit his honour and give Christian his bond that nothing shall come of it. He then turned to pleading with the men of the ship party, telling Edward Young that it was a serious affair. Young acknowledged, saying that it was serious, serious to be starved on a ship that has plenty of food. I hope this day to get a bellyful, he told Bly. Thomas Ellison, a 16-year-old seaman, initially listened to Bly, turning the ship away from Toffois, but he soon got caught up in the excitement of it all and was brandishing a musket, yelling, Damn him, I will be sentry over him. To which, Christian ripped the gun from him and said, You little monkey, what business have you with that? The loyalists with Bly never once tried to overpower the mutineers, probably because none of the men were prepared to lose their lives over him. Ironically, the only one who really tried to stop the revolt was Friar, probably the man that Bly hated the most. He requested to be allowed on deck, then entreated them, saying, 
Mr. Christian, you and I have been on friendly terms during the voyage. Therefore, give me leave to speak. Let Mr. Bly go down to his cabin, and I make no doubt that we shall all be friends again in a short time. He then suggested that if Christian didn't approve of Bly's conduct, then why didn't he place Bly under arrest and simply finish the voyage? Hold your tongue, Christian told him. It is too late. On his way back down, Friar asked Morrison if he had a hand in the mutiny. Morrison replied a negative, and the friar told him to be on his guard if an opportunity might show itself. Morrison told him to knock it off and go into his cabin. The fight was, at this point, all but lost. Friar went below deck and found Nelson the gardener and Peckover the gunner. Peckover thought the commotion up deck was Tongans attacking the ship, but Nelson explained that the ship had been seized by their own, and blamed Bly as the sole reason for the attack. The two men went on the deck with their captain, while Friar pleaded with them to stay, since they might help turn the mutiny around. Peckover and Nelson disagreed, and said that they would all be branded pirates if they stayed aboard. Apart from two men that swayed from side to side, the men had chosen where their loyalties lie. As the boat launched, Bly asked Christian to consider his wife and kids, to which Christian said, If you had any honour, things would not have come to this, and if you had any regard for your wife and family, you should have thought of them before, and not behaved so much like a villain. Eighteen men in all were piled into a boat designed for ten. As it floated away, Norman and Thomas McIntosh called out to Bly that they were innocent. It seems as though they were intending to leave with Bly, but Christian vetoed that idea. Too many people already in the boat, and the bounty would need carpentry skills. Joseph Coleman, the armorer, was also kept aboard, as well as Brian the fiddler, but that was probably just because... Everyone sort of just forgot about him hiding under deck. And so Bly's men began rowing. The bounty turned to sail northwest, heading back to Tahiti. They stowed away their weapons, and Christian was astounded at the passive obedience to his commands. The thing is, he actually regretted having to launch the men in the boat, and was noted as remarking that he would have given his life if they could be safe in the ship again. Though it wasn't like he had handed them a death sentence, despite what popular culture might be telling you, most desertions were on small islands just a little out of the way from uh, larger islands or trading lanes. Bly could quite easily take the boat from the island of Tofua and sail to a relatively close Tongan island where he could flag down one of the English ships that frequented the uh, area. And the boat itself had weeks worth of water and some cutlasses for defence, though they wouldn't be much help if they found some rather upset Polynesian warriors. While on the ship, Christian insisted that he had no right to command, but the men insisted that he be the captain. The fragile social groups that had been present before the mutiny were pretty much still there after. Those that had participated had been mostly seamen, and four of the 25 men that had remained on the bounty had done so under duress. Christian would make it a habit to keep a loaded pistol with him from that point on, and Churchill slept on top of the arms chest every night.
Now, from here, we have essentially two narratives to follow. We're going to first look at Bly and the Loyalists. In their little boat, the Loyalists rode about 50 clicks northeast back to Tufwa. The island was inhabited by Tongans, who didn't take a liking to the Europeans. Nagite, one of the chiefs Bly had taken hostage earlier in his voyage, happened to be visiting the island when the castaways arrived. Nagite seemed to be pleased to see Bly again, maybe? At night, the castaways slept in a cave on the beach, keeping watch over the entrance. Several days passed as the crew traded with the locals with what little they had. Each day, the Tongans grew bolder and hundreds would gather on the beach. Bly began to get a little bit worried about an impending attack, since this is sort of how the natives began to act in Hawaii. A group of islanders attempted to drag the launch ashore, but were run off by Bly angrily waving his cutlass about. And during lunch the day after, the Tongans constantly asked Bly to sit down, which Bly refused, thinking that they would seize him. And at the drop of a hat, Bly ordered everyone to the launch. Stones rained down as they tried to leave. John Norton had to free the boat's stern line and fell to an attack. His head was bashed in with rocks. Bly would later write to a relative of Norton's that his death was fortunate, since he was a stout man and he would have interfered with the boat's progress and allowance of provisions. The islanders began pulling the line to get the boat back ashore, so Bly sliced the line with a knife. The loyalists then hauled ass on the oars and canoes were launched from the beach. The crew tossed clothing over, thinking that it might distract them. In the end, the islanders pretty much just gave up on the chase. Now, because of this attack, Bly was reluctant to follow his original plan and instead set sail for the nearest western outpost that he knew, a Dutch settlement in the East Indies, thousands of clicks northwest. Now, without that fancy timekeeper, he would have to use dead reckoning to estimate if he was on course to Timor. As the boat progressed through the uncharted Fijian islands, other Polynesian canoes rowed out to pursue them, but Bly managed to keep ahead of them. During this time, he was also struggling to maintain authority over the men. Of course, it came down to the food again. While on the bounty, there was plenty of food, on this boat, they were severely reduced. The default ration was 1 25th of a pound of bread and a quarter of a pint of water three times a day. The average man required roughly 2,500 calories a day, and this would give the men 140 calories for a single day. Now, what sailors typically did with the bread, since it was actually more of a hard sort of biscuit, was rehydrate it with water. Now, in this instance, the men in the boat would use some seawater, which kind of also added the benefit of seasoning it as well. Bly, on the other hand, would take a coconut half and combine his bread with the ration of water and pace the day eating his porridge concoction. Now, the lack of food and the intake of seawater soon made the men become afflicted with dizzy spells, constipation, and abdominal pains. Their muscles and joints also hurt from being huddled in the boat constantly. Thankfully though, fresh water wasn't much of a problem for them, since there were frequent storms. Without worry of thirst, they had to worry instead about water pooling in the boat, as well as being almost constantly 
drenched. They had fashioned a fishing line that they tied to the boat, but it was really quite unreliable. On the 25th of May, someone caught a small seabird by hand and they divided it into 18 portions and it was devoured raw, bones, entrails, the works. The next day, two boobies were caught and the same fate befell them. 29th of May, Blyce sailed the boat to the eastern coast of Queensland here in Australia. They landed on a small coastal island and staggered out, where they then feasted on oysters. A small band of aboriginals appeared across the water and seemed friendly enough, gesturing for the castaways to join them. Bly had been burned before and would not risk it. From there, they island hopped along Queensland's coast and each shore that they reached, discipline would break down further. It seemed that some provisions were missing. On the 30th of May, some pork rations were missing and on the 6th of June, some clams were gone. Robert Lamb had become separated from his foraging party on an island and in his solitude, he ate nine, nine raw seabirds. Bly was absolutely furious and wrote that Lamb received a good beating. Purcell refused to give up some of the clams that he'd collected on the island in a sort of every man for himself kind of defense. Bly insisted that they be placed in the communal pot. Now this led to an argument where Purcell remarked that he was not a scoundrel, sir. I am as a good a man as you. This might not sound much to us today, but Bly took that as a challenge and tossed Purcell a cutlass as he drew his own. Purcell refused and just screamed out for help. He was absolutely sure that Bly would kill him. Fryer thought the entire ordeal was hilarious and ordered William Cole to put Bly under arrest. Bly responded that anyone who interfered with his command would be put to death. Purcell would yield and the castaways then continued on their way. They left their final landing on the northern tip of Australia and then set sail for Timor. Despite the clams and birds that they caught, the men were still wasting away. Bly took to giving the weakest men spoonfuls of wine. Through this time, he didn't forget his task of charting the Endeavour Strait. Within his journals, he drew up charts until he spotted palm trees that dotted the coast of Timor at 3 in the morning, 12th of June. It had been 46 days, and almost 4,000 nautical miles after being cast out. Finally, they had made it to a European outpost. With land under their feet, the men swung between defiance and apology as Bly reminded them that their passage to England and their pay was still in his hands. As majority of the crew went to meet the Dutch traders, Bly ordered Friar and John Smith to stay with the boat despite them being near the brink of death. Bly and the rest of the men feasted on breakfast. Thankfully though, a soldier took pity on the two men at the boat and brought them some food. Friar and Smith feasted on tea and cakes that morning. Now, in a move to respond to Purcell and Peter Linkletter confronting him about taking extra provisions of bread during the ordeal, Bly ordered them imprisoned on the Dutch captain's ship. Bly would go on to buy himself a schooner and set it with swivel guns for protection in preparation for sailing through the Java Sea. Nelson, the gardener who'd helped them forage for edible plants whilst in Australia, 
had sadly died of a fever before they set out. Also before leaving, Bly wrote letters to New South Wales and India, giving the authorities the physical descriptions of the mutineers. Sailing back to England with the Dutch convoy of 18 loyalists, 11 managed to return home 13 of March, 1790. Bly would go on to publish his journal and be honourably acquitted of losing the bounty at a court-martial. He was also made a post-captain, the position that he'd wished to hold prior to leaving England on the bounty. A year after arriving back in England, Bly would command a new breadfruit expedition. The mission was the exact same, but Admiralty spared no expense this time. They gave him a bigger ship with more men, including 20 marines. John Smith and Lawrence Labau would sail with him again on the new trip. William Peckover applied to join as well, but was turned down. It seems Bly still had some sort of hatred for the gunner. His second trip was a success, technically, in that it fulfilled the mission. There are accounts from this trip, however, that Bly's conduct was similar to when on the bounty. Now, couple this with some spoilers of what is to come, he fell out of favour with superiors that he had barely been in the light to begin with. He would eventually end up as a governor in New South Wales, and played an important part in the Rum Rebellion, which is kind of funny because the Rum Rebellion was a coup, and what is a coup if not simply a mutiny against the government? And that's more or less the end of that story. Now it is time to get into the mutineers. Okay, rolling on back to Christian sailing away from the castaways. One of the first things the crew did was throw out all the pots of the breadfruit, making so much more room for the crew below deck. Christian ordered that they aim for an island 600 kilometers south of Tahiti. And he wasn't modest when he said that he didn't want to be captain. See, while he kept discipline on the ship, below deck when he was asked for orders, he would be found with his head in his hands and he would simply reply yes or no. When they reached the island of Tabai, Christian was faced with being the first contact the islanders had with white man. These islanders did not value iron and hatchets like the other ones had, and they didn't fear guns. James Morrison would come to play the role of amateur ethnologist, recording customs and culture. Morrison was critical of Bly, but not one of the active mutineers. His accounts would provide a much-needed counterbalance to Bly's journal concerning the events of the bounty. In one instance, Bly frames a story as being a generous captain, giving the crew a serving of sheep as a bonus for work well done. Now, according to Morrison's journal, the sheep had died and most of it had been tossed overboard and shark skin had been supplemented instead. But back to the island. The beach was full of red-tuniced warriors, branching clubs and spears. Conch shells echoed, canoes would row up to the ship, one side was crowded with women, warriors filled the other side. The mutineers tried to land ashore and the islanders threw stones at them. Muskets were fired and 11 men and women were killed. Regrouping, the bounty weighed their options. 
Christian was dead set on building a settlement on this particular island. Since it had bad anchorage and its nearness to Tahiti meant there would be absolutely no reason for a ship to ever land here. He insisted that the Tabuayans could be won over. So they made a little trip back to Tahiti to stock up and they made a return to Tabuayi. They had livestock and Tahitian men and women, which included some wives that the men had taken, like Christian's partner, Mauatua. Some Tahitian men had stowed away. Among them was Tihitihi, who had sailed with Cook during his second voyage and had seen Tonga, Easter Island, and New Zealand before dropping him back in Tahiti. Nine days after Bly was reaching Timor, Christian was entering Tubai's reef for a second time. After dropping anchor, two of Christian's men went ashore without leave, and upon returning the next day, they exclaimed that the ship is moored and that they were now masters. Christian would have none of this, and pulled out his pistol and held it to one's head, and shouted that he would let them know who is master. They were then placed in irons. The mutineers chose a sandy area to settle. They hoisted a Union Jack and drank an extra allowance of grog. Christian would dub this area Fort George, for that was the plan. And it was an ambitious plan at that. A ditch five and a half meters wide and just over six meters deep, and walls of five and a half meters thick. A moat along with a drawbridge was planned, with a four-pounder cannon on each corner. Christian himself joined in the labour, and the men involved were granted an extra pint of port per day for their efforts. While they were working on Fort George, a ship named the Mercury came so close to finding them. One night it sailed within four clicks of the island. They could see some dull fires in the distance, and fired two shots to try and get the islanders' attention. They would move on to Matavai Bay, where the captain would hear talk of Titorano, the Tahitian name for Christian. Tensions would rise again with the islanders as Christian delved into the island's politics. Other villages on the island took offense that Christian had chosen that particular spot for his fort since their lands were better suited. In one attack against them, a naked John Adams had to be rescued from a rival chief's house. In addition to the islanders, Christian also had to fend off his men, they were struggling to lure in local women to the fort and insisted that she, they should be allowed to abduct them from their villages instead. They refused to work until they were allowed to do so. We also have the crew going feral for grog. Double rations that Christian had been generous enough to give was not enough. And the men broke the lock of the bounty spirit room, got sloshed and began to threaten each other. Still, Christian forged ahead. In an effort to get more resources for his fort, he began to dismantle the ship, frightening Morrison, Hayward, and George Stewart. These men began to whisper about stealing the bounty and making for Tahiti in the hopes of flagging down an English ship. Morrison estimated that it would take him five to six days if the weather was good, and if the weather was bad, they would be done for. After two months, the fort was only half finished. Christian got the men together and they cast a vote. 16 out of 25 wanted to return to Tahiti, despite the risk of capture. 
Christian relented on the condition that he be allowed to take the boat after dropping them off at Tahiti. He said to them, I will never live where I may be carried home to be a disgrace to my family. Eight men pledged to remain with him and the bounty. As they were preparing to leave Tabuai, a chief refused to give up some pigs that he had found. The mutineers assembled a war party and marched to the chief. On the way, a spear hit Burkett's side, which began a flurry of spears and stones against muskets that could be shot and reloaded three times a minute. The crew would retreat and the Tabuayans lost heart in the chase. 66 islanders were killed and only a couple of people were injured on the mutineers' side, including Burkett's non-fatal scrape to the side. Now over on Tahiti, the 16 men who had chosen to leave included four sailors who had been kept on the ship against their will. Two officers that played no part in the mutiny, Stuart and Hayward, and two who had an active role in it, Charles Churchill and Thomas Ellison. Each man was given a musket, a pistol, a cutlass, and a bayonet. Despite telling the disembarking men that he would stick around for a couple of days, Christian would set sail almost immediately, with about 19 Tahitian women below the deck, having supper. Some of them would get wise to this and jump off and swim back to shore, Others were let go the next island over. Christian took the bounty west towards Tonga. When they sailed past a small island, a man ventured aboard via a canoe and took interest in the pearl buttons on Christian's coat. Christian gave it to him, and as he posed at the bounty's gunwale, a mutineer shot him dead and he fell into sea. Christian lamented this, but said that he could do nothing more than reprimand the murderer severely. Two more days later, and the mutineers were right back where they had started, literally just a day's sail from Tufois. Poring over the books left on the bounty, he found coordinates for Pitcairn Island. They would reach it in January 1790, after finding the coordinates incorrect. You see, it would be perfect for them. Warships searching for the mutineers would start in Tahiti, more than likely going west, not east, against the prevailing winds. The island would fall outside of shipping lanes until 1914, and they would certain that no authority would find them there. The crew explored the island and began to plant crops taken from Tahiti. Sails became tents and clothing, and the island was divided into nine equal parts, though immediately tensions would rise as tobacco and liquor ran out, and each mutineer jealously guarded their portion. And the poor Polynesians who were brought along for the ride found themselves regulated to third-class citizens without any land for themselves. In February 1791, the mutineers that had been left on Tahiti, let's call them the Remainers, had been living on Tahiti for roughly a year. They had thrown themselves in with Tinia as mercenaries. Tinia's soldiers now wore uniforms. They marched in formation and they fired muskets. Within that year, he became the most powerful person on the island. Though Tinia's son, technically, now seven years old, was, again technically, the supreme king of Tahiti. Soon after Christian had left, the remainers found that they weren't the only whites on the island. A man named John Brown had been marooned kicked out of the Mercury. 
Now, according to him, he had requested to be left on the island since he had a disagreement with a fellow shipmate and had slashed his face with a knife. Peter Haywood would embrace island culture. He lived in a small cottage, learned Tahitian, and compiled a dictionary that kept him occupied. He adopted the local dress and got tattoos, but this may have been less of a choice as the Tahitians explained that a man without tattoos was an outcast. Even though it seems like he was doing fairly well, the themes found in his poetry would suggest otherwise. The poem said about how he was unhappy, despondent, and miserable, lamenting his life as an exile. Morrison led an effort to make a boat from island materials, where he hoped to sail to Timor. He wasn't a boat builder, so he had to recruit some reluctant shipmates with carpentry and armory skills. He managed to procure Hayward's quadrant and navigational books for a gallon of wine and hatchet. After seven months, he had a nine-meter, two-mast schooner. Morrison called this vessel the Resolution and spent many days salting pork in preparation of returning to civilization. Churchill offered to lead his shipmates, and they refused. So he and Thompson moved to another part of the island with blackjack and hookers, where he managed to satisfy his thirst for ruling by becoming a chief. Thompson, on the other hand, just went completely nuts. He beat local women who refused to sleep with him, and one day after attempting to rape a chief's daughter and being knocked down by the woman's brother, he stormed home, vowing to shoot the next Tahitian he saw. Just so happened, a curious group of Tahitians stood outside of his hut, to which Thompson fired a musket, killing a man and his baby and breaking a woman's jaw. Thompson and Churchill's friendship would devolve into a paranoid rivalry. This culminated with Churchill ordering a servant to steal Thompson's muskets. When Thompson heard of the plot, he shot and killed Churchill. The Tahitians avenged Churchill's death by bludgeoning Thompson to death with rocks. On March 24, 1791, a courier arrived with a message that the British ship named the Pandora had anchored at Matavai Bay after they had left. Three of the men who stayed behind, Hayward, Stewart and Coleman, had all vol voluntarily boarded the ship and had been put into irons. Two launches from the Pandora were on their way to arrest the mutineers, led by none other than Thomas Haywood. Now the captain, Edward Edwards, was a humorless man with a hatred of mutineers. He accepted the three mentioned before, slapping them in irons. Now every mutineer would be treated the same no matter how they surrendered. They would all be stripped naked and chained below deck. Morrison, McIntosh, Norman, they would all give themselves up. Even though Bly had exonerated them back in England, guilt or innocence really didn't matter to Edwards. Just so long as they were part of the bounty crew, they were all rounded up and taken back for trial. After all, it wasn't his job to determine if they had gone of their own will or against it. After setting out from Tahiti, Hillbrandt told Edwards that Christian had revealed his destination to him, an island west of Danger Island, that is, Puka Puka, in the Cook Islands. Over this area, they had found some worm-eaten wood that was marked the bounty. When looking, a jolly boat containing five of his crew was lost, thanks to the heavy squall that was never seen again. Now, back in Tahiti, Edwards confiscated Morrison's schooner and renamed her the Matavei. In the Samoas, a little ship 
and the Pandora lost each other in the rain shower. As they passed through the Pacific West, Edward saw smoke signals from an island, then he co-wrote, but chose to ignore them since mutineers, surely they wouldn't reveal their position so willingly. Quick detour for a second here to mention that the signal was more than likely the survivors of the La Pourouse expedition, a French voyage of discovery that wrecked in the reefs in 1791. The story goes that some of the survivors were killed by Polynesians, and the remainder, including the captain, remained on the island for many years. In August 1791, after almost a year at sea, the Pandora rolled near the Great Barrier Reef, intending to go home. Edwards had lost 14 men, and evidence of the mutineers was weakening by the day. Cautious, aware of the danger that the reef had presented to Cook on his voyages, Edwards inched through the reef, a small boat sailing ahead and signalling if it were safe. At seven at night, when the boat was returning to the ship for the night, a couple of rogue waves threw Pandora into the reef. It was mortal damage. Coleman, Norman and Mackintosh were removed from the box and ordered to the pumps. Nine feet of seawater filled the hold. The mutineers pleaded to let them help, breaking their shackles but remaining locked in the box. Edwards put them back in the irons and stationed two men with an order to shoot if they tried to escape. The water rose to 11 feet. The ship began to heel to one side and one sailor was crushed by a loose cannon. More men were killed as ropes that held the boat snapped and the topmast fell. The water was now coming in faster than the pumps could get it out. At daybreak, the mutineers could see the officers climbing into the small boats. Of the mutineers locked in the box, it was only Hillbrand that didn't make it out before the ship completely rolled. The ship took 11 hours to sink. 35 of the crew drowned, along with 4 from the bounty. Hillbrand, as mentioned before, Richard Skinner, George Stewart, and John Sumner. Everyone would regroup into two tents on the quay. One for the officers, the other for everyone else. The prisoners were left to wither in the sun. The day's meal was a mouthful of bread and a glass of wine. The mutineers were left to the elements for the night. One of Pandora's crew collected steam from boiled water and slowly drank that way. Another drank seawater and quickly became delirious. With four small boats, they sailed west to Timor. It took two weeks and some men resorted to drinking their urine out of thirst and they ended up dying of dehydration. Now I think Thomas Hayward was cursed since this would be his second time rocking up at Timor in less than stellar conditions. They even did the same things that Bly did, weighing provisions and drinking seabird blood. They stayed close to the northern coast of Australia and even heard the howling of dingoes, which they mistook for wolves. Once they got to Timor, specifically the Dutch outpost, the mutineers were handed over to the Dutch authorities. They spent a week in the stocks before being placed in the irons in a cell. We have a cameo from William and Mary Bryant, Mary being the first person ever to escape the early Australian penal colony. They also made contact with the crew of the Matave. After losing the Pandora, they sailed delirious and near death of thirst to the Fijian Islands, where the Fijians gave them sweet potatoes and coconuts. They then limped through the Endeavour Strait and across the Dutch East Indies. 
These men, nine in total, sailing a schooner, was what was reported of the bounty crew. So these men were kept under suspicious watch. They insisted they were actually hunting the bounty, but the boat, made of Tahitian materials, seemed like something cobbled together by some runaways. Nineteenth of June, seventeen ninety-two. The remainers arrive in England, nine months after the Pandora had sunk. They weren't allowed on land. Instead, they were transferred to the warship Hector and had to wait another three months for their trial. Haywood was fifteen years old when the bounty set sail. He was now twenty, awaiting court-martial. Now I'm going to cut down on the, let's face it, thrilling court accounts which was the hardest part to research because it is so dry and so boring. So, Coleman, McIntosh, Norman and Brian were acquitted. Hayward and Morrison would receive royal pardons from King George and Muspratt won a stay of execution. Pretty much all these men faded into obscurity. It seems they kept their heads down from that point on. The remainder were sentenced to hang for their roles in the mutiny. So, what happened to the mutineers that ended up on Pitcairn Island? Well, we have three accounts to look at. Eighteen years after they landed on the island, John Adams was the only one left on the island of the original group. And it wouldn't be until 1820s before he would tell of what happened on the island. Considering his stories continuously change, I don't consider him to be a reliable source of information. His accounts of Christian flip-flop from sullen and morose to cheerful to as bad as Bly. He saw one account that Christian had sparked a Tahitian rebellion after the death of his wife, despite his wife being very much alive at the time. Later accounts have John Williams as instigator. According to Adams, Christian had set fire to the bounty after landing, but he also told of how Quintal set fire to her after Christian had run her aground. The next source is a much more reliable source because the details would match that of the third source, a journal written by Edward Young. This source, however, is a Tahitian woman named Tihatia Tuanoa, who had an English name, which for the sake of my monolinguistic tongue, was Jenny. Jenny began her trip to the island as John Adams' wife. Some point soon after landing, she became the wife of Isaac Martin. Jenny said that Christian was killed in the revolt by Tahitians, along with pretty much all the other mutineers. Now, there's no dates for the day dubbed Massacre Day, but later the island gives the date of 1793, three years after the burning of the bounty. Jenny said several mutineers set fire to the ship against Christian's wishes. About a year after landing, John Williams' wife had died of disease, and the mutineers drew lots to determine who among the wives of the Polynesian men would be given to Williams. The lot fell to the wife of Tararo. He was humiliated and left in self-exile to the mountains. A few days later, he managed to steal his wife and take her into hiding with him. A plot then emerged among Tararo, 
and some other conspirators to kill the whites. The mutineers learnt of this plot, and Christian sent one of the Polynesian men into the mountains with a pistol to crush the plot. He was successful in assassinating Tararo. On the day that would become Massacre Day, Manarai, a Tahitian man, had been beaten by McCoy for stealing a pig. Jenny described the purge that followed. Quote, the mutineers did not suspect their intentions. Williams was the first man shot while putting up a fence around his garden. The natives next proceed to shoot Christian. They found him clearing some ground for a garden. And while in the act of carrying away some roots, they went behind him and shot him between the shoulders. He fell. They then disfigured him with an axe about the head and left him on the ground, dead. Fletcher Christian, it seemed, died at 28 years old, his wife pregnant with their third child. Jenny said the Tahitians then went to another cottage where they shot John Mills. At Isaac Martin's house, they shot him twice as he ran away. They then descended on Brown, bashing his head in with stones. The rebels went to Adam's house and fired at him, the musket ball breaking two of his fingers. The Tahitian women in the house jumped over him and the rebels left him be. Quintal and McCoy managed to flee into the mountains. Adams and Young were the only whites left in the settlement. The Polynesians then turned their muskets on each other, probably fighting over the wives of the now-dead settlers. Manarai shot Tumeria three times. Fearing for his life, Manarai fled to the mountains and joined the two whites. The Tahitian women who knew where they were hiding convinced Quintal and McCoy to kill Manarai, which they did. The two remaining Tahitian men went in search for the two men in the mountains. They spotted them in the distance and fired at them. They believed that they had injured McCoy. The next day, Tahitian women turned to the mutineers still in the settlement. The Polynesian men were resting in the midday heat when Young and the women attacked them. A woman hit one of them with the hatchet at the same time, calling to Young to fire his musket, killing the other. On the island remained 11 Tahitian women and 4 Englishmen, Smith, McCoy, Young and Quintal. About two months after this event, Young began his journal. In the entry for 12th of March 1794, Going over to borrow a rake to rake the dust off my ground, I saw Jenny having a skull in her hand. I asked her whose it was, and was told it was Jack Williams. I desired that it might be buried. The woman who were with Jenny gave for me an answer, it should not. You see, it's thought that the skulls were kept as oromotua, or the disembodied spirits of loved ones. Young thought this was absolutely barbarous, and after some arguing, the women relented, and they buried the bones of all the dead into an unmarked mass grave. The island would be more or less peaceful over the next few years at least until McCoy learned to distill liquor. In a drunken stupor, Quintal's three fellow deserters killed him. The murder was witnessed by Elizabeth Mills when she was seven years old. She said that Young and Adams got Quintal drunk and killed him with an axe. Upon seeing the body in a drunken delirium, McCoy bound his hands and feet and dived into the sea. Young's journals stopped around this time too. Though, according to Adams, Young would live for another two years and die simply of a natural death 
on Christmas Day. Adams himself would die in 1829, age 62, leading the small island of now 86 people, including Fletcher Christian's son, Thursday October Christian. No one bothered to interview him, nor did they bother to interview his mother, Christian's partner, Mauatua, who lived to be 80 years old. And that concludes the mutiny on the HMS Bounty. If you have enjoyed these episodes, please share with your friends. Thank you for listening to the Sex and Murder Podcast.